Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Technology, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jari Peters, your host. Today, Professor Sonia Livingstone has joined us to talk about her book, Parenting for a Digital Future, How Hopes and Fears About Technology Shape Children's Lives. The book is co-authored with Alicia Blum-Ross, who is a policy, a public policy lead for kids and families at Google. Professor Livingstone is a professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her research examines how the changing conditions of mediation are reshaping everyday practices and possibilities for action. She has published 20 books on media audiences, specifically focusing on children and young people's risks and opportunities, media literacy and rights in the digital environment. Professor Livingstone currently directs the Digital Futures Commission with the Five Rights Foundation and the Global Kids Online Project with UNICEF, along with various other prestigious affiliations. Professor Livingstone, thank you for joining me today uh, to discuss this this really interesting book, Parenting for a Digital Future. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Jerry. Thank you so much. So I, I found this book both fascinating and provocative, and I, I, I definitely want to get into uh, some of the some of the reasons why. Um, so we, we definitely have a lot to talk about, um, but maybe you could start us off and tell us how you came to write uh, the book. Sure. Um, I have done research with children and families in relation to digital te- in relation to media technologies actually a media change for many years and my focus has always been on children and that's what people always ask me about um and it was kind of only recently I realized that parents don't get much of a voice and parents are even kind of conceived of as quite kind of problematic this sort of deficit theory of parents are somehow uh, failing children and not um, living up to their kind of societal expectations. And I wanted to get parents' side of it. And um, we did the work actually when Alicia was um, still a a research fellow at the London School of Economics. So she's an anthropologist. um, I'm a psychologist. And we kind of wanted to use the lens of parenting really to kind of open up the the transformations that families and all of us are living through as we kind of move into ever more kind of digitally complex lives. Mm. And so the book comes out of, correct me if I'm wrong, comes out of a, uh, a national study um, and uh, approximately 73 families that you all interviewed mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. London? Right. We began with the in-depth qualitative research and we um, were, uh, it was a bit ethnographic. We we kind of worked in and around these various digital media learning sites where 
it seemed to us that some people were gravitating as a way of sort of embracing a digital um, a digital future. Um, and we wanted to understand what was drawing some people to those sites and to want to gain those skills. Sometimes it was coming more from the parents, sometimes from the child. Um, uh, and then we realized at a certain point that we felt we were on to uh, understanding something about how families were reshaping themselves to embrace these kind of new possibilities. And then we did the national survey because we wanted to be sure that we were, um, you know, the, the claims we were making were kind of representative and also uh, to dig in a little bit to some of the more uh, minority or particular experiences that, you know, you can't quite see in a, uh, a sample of 73, but you can see when you've got um, 2,000 families. So it was trying to kind of use the quantitative to, uh, contextualize and as a sort of check on the on our basically qualitative approach right and can you can you take us through sort of the qualitative approach um, I just want to um, maybe explore that a little bit especially since um, you know as, as I was looking at the um, at, at some of the um, the data in the in the towards the end of the book um, it seemed like you all really tried to um, ensure that you had a broad swath um, of different types of uh, families represented by um, different socioeconomic statuses, um, nationality status, statuses, and uh, uh, various families from different countries. Um, could you talk a little bit about why that was important to the process? Sure. I mean, the the, the project kind of grew organically um, beginning in London and it really is centered in London but of course London is a global city and uh, so as a global city it um, it attracts a lot of um, inward investment from you know kind of um, entrepreneurs and and uh, digital um, enterprises uh, and it also uh, as a kind of very multicultural city, it becomes a kind of hub for uh, creativity and um, uh, innovation and, you know, kind of experimentation really with what the digital future is going to be. And my sense in, in beginning the project was that, you know, this is this is people's lives. They are they are kind of committing to that um, sense that there is something to be uh, explored and experimented with in relation to technologies that can that can give a kind of form and set of possibilities to their lives in a way that is distinctive. So, so qualitative research sort of sets itself the task um, not of trying to be representative, but trying to uh, explore the available diversity and difference in experience. So, you know, we began in these... Um, various digital media um, kind of learning settings. One was rather affluent, one was kind of more middle class, and one was um, in a really low income neighborhood um, attached to a kind of very um, multi-ethnic school where people had very little money. So we kind of positioned ourselves in these three sites and then we branched out um, meeting different people, being introduced along the way to other um, families, um, not all of whom were so kind of fascinated with the digital, um, but we did keep, kind of keep an eye on, you know, do we are we are we uh, getting the experience of people of different income groups, of people with different kind of cultural backgrounds and values, um, of different kinds of family composition. Um, 
so so we we definitely wanted those different experiences and we um you'll have seen in the book we have a chapter also on families where the children have special educational needs and disabilities um and that was important to us really to kind of you know overcome that sense that uh, that you see in the adverts all the time that they the the family who use the internet are rather affluent, rather white, rather kind of able-bodied, and that everything is, um, you know, very happy, <laughs> as it were. Right. I mean, this is the we we really wanted to kind of look behind at the reality of what is what is family's experience and what are all the differences to, that that we should contend with. Right. Yes. I. I. I you know, following this um, this this research, I I definitely see a a more of a nuance um, in this book. Um, and and the the approach that you both took here, because I think you're right. I think um, when we read um, in this area, particularly um, uh, where parents, um, well, really children, right, are the focus. As you said, parents are are rarely um, the the focus unless they're being um, uh, sort of there are these diatribes against you know how parents um, uh, do their parenting, if you will. Um, and so I, I think it's, it was really interesting to see the, this approach um, that provided us, or, or at least, a, you know, the intention was to provide some nuance um, um, and, and maybe not so much according to the established category. So let's, let's maybe get more into that. What, what were some of the, the dilemmas um, that um, you found were um, common um, both common and different uh, amongst um, the, the diversity of the parents that you that you all interviewed. Mm. Um, maybe I can give um, some kinds of um, examples. I'm just thinking, um, for example, one family where um, we interviewed the the kind of the separated um, actually the the, the mum was separated from um, her partner and the children but she had built a kind of a super high-tech home she didn't have a lot of money but she'd kind of gone all out as a kind of geeky home um to provide a a, a sort of a, a, a cultural a space where she and her sons when they came to visit would engage and invite their friends and she was kind of rebuilding an idea of family and of future uh, that um, gave her a, a really kind of viable and distinctive relationship with her um, her sons and gave them all a kind of shared narrative and identity that was very positive. And clearly there was kind of sadness and heartache, you know, kind of behind in the scenes. And we saw that in a number of families, actually. But um, there was also this kind of embrace of, embrace of a, a geeky digital future as a, as a path that, um, she felt she had kind of agency over. Um, and if I think of another family, um, much even uh, much poorer, and um, uh, a, a mother who had um, migrated from East Africa um, and was putting everything into uh, providing the tech for her daughters um, to give them a kind of future, and the technology had become the the symbol, if you like, of why she'd migrated, why she'd made this kind of huge move as a um, uh, to, 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 to difficult London, not always very welcoming London. Um, but she had this investment and the technology symbolised that and she couldn't really understand it. She couldn't use it 
some of it was broken. But her daughters, who were, you know, I think one of the, the, the older girl was only about 10, she could use it. And, and it was such a symbol of hope for, for that mother to put the money in that she could kind of scrape together um, and, again, build a kind of vision of the family going forward um, that gave her hope, even though she didn't really quite understand what, what, what that, those possibilities were. You know, we kind of had lots of stories like that of people. Um, I think it is a bit London um, or, you know, the global city in the sense that because people see um, non-standard pathways uh, being enabled and facilitated in a large, very kind of multicultural um, city, they sort of squeeze themselves in. So we, we interviewed lots of families where they had very little space to live and very little money, but a sense that they wanted to be part of that kind of buzzing new possible lifestyles and ways of stepping out of the the kind of very constraining norms that that they felt they might have you know struggled against in other places. Right. So there's the there's the trade off that that that's sort of represented um uh, in in the book. Um, mm. I I wonder, um, maybe I can just say I mean a kind of investment in in technology that is um, more than the technology itself you know mm-hmm. merits in a way, but that. Um, you know, when we say in the subtitle of the book how how hopes and fears about technology shape children's lives, those hopes and fears often are motivated by um, the you know the struggle to make sense of a major um, migration in one's life, or the struggle to rebuild um, a viable family future after um, relationship breakdown, or um, the ways in which uh, the parents of of children with special needs and disabilities you know, didn't see a future for themselves, really. But with technology, they felt there was a kind of a workaround. So the investment in technology is an investment in technology, but it's also an investment in family and it's an investment in the future. Right. And, I, you know, it's it's very interesting because I I, I think that was, was very clear um, as you sort of um, uh, led us through your interactions with uh, the different families. Um, but with, what something that, that I definitely want to come back to a little bit later in the interview um, uh, was uh, this pretty sober observation that you all had about, um, uh, you know, sort of the trajectory of each um, type of family and, um, you know, sort of based on um, uh, 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 other uh, studies, how um, trajectories uh, were rarely um, uh, subverted. So if, if there, if there was, you know, for, for instance, your, um, elite afflu- uh, affluent, uh, family, um, you know, their boys were going to continue to, um, you know, sort of be successful and have the access to the higher level, um, coding camps, um, versus, um, you know, one of the, the, the other families who, while they had access to certain, um, coding, uh, opportunities, they weren't uh, necessarily at the level of um, the elite uh, families and what, and what that meant for potential life chances. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I, we will definitely come back to that because I think it's a, it's a very interesting, um, very interesting observation, notwithstanding uh, sort of the, um, the hope um, that, that you all kind of talk about with, with all of the families, right. Or about all of the families. Um I mean, I mean, maybe just to, to kind of comment now, I think that's right. It's one of the um, uh, 
uh, maybe it's not quite a paradox, but you know, if you if you get that qualitative kind of perspective working within a family and getting their confidence and, you know, you hear their hopes uh, and those do shape the actions that they take uh, mm-hmm. and they do shape the kind of narrative that they tell for where they, you know, what they want for their children and where they're trying to go. And they um, uh, influence the decision, the purchasing decisions and the which coding camp they put their kids into and all of those things that the the hopes matter in really substantive ways but that's not the same as saying they are enough to deliver on the vision and that's where that kind of you know we we have to look at the the wider social science which tells us that um overall social mobility is not very good basically um mainly people kind of stay in the the sort of ranking in life that they've been allotted by, you know, how they were born and what what opportunities they had. Um, uh, it we we've lived through. Um, I think in both the US and in Britain, we've lived through um, a series of decades in which every family could hope that their children were going to do better, and uh, in terms of income and demographics, they often did. Um, but that's changing, and the last you know couple of decades have been a, a kind of a, a, a plateau at best. Um, and for some parents, you know, their children will not do as well as they have in terms of education or income. And so, you know, we we kind of heard these hopes from many parents for many reasons, often centered on the technology. But we were also reading that wider social science literature that says, you know, by and large. It's inequalities that are rising, not social mm-hmm. mobility. It's, um, you know, parents are, are trying to do the right things, but that doesn't mean that they can really give their child the leg up to new, you know, sort of overcome the obstacles that they also face in their life. Um, and, um, yeah, so that was a kind of, a, it, it was sobering in a way to listen to people's hopes, but mm-hmm. kind of know the social science on on what's most likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was, I mean, just to follow this thread, I, I thought that was a, a very, um, as I said before, a, a sobering kind of um, uh, uh, observation. Um, and I I, I wonder um, what you think the impact of, of, of knowing that um, uh, for families uh, might be. I, you know, I'm thinking about um, uh, the, uh, I believe it's the Tybalt family. And how um, the father um, sort of, um, you know, expressed that, uh, you know, he expected his boys to uh, essentially to be, you know, um, sort of a a head um, of others. And it was definitely the, you know, what what you all shared with us about that conversation. There was definitely a sense of, um, you know, that there's an expectation for our children you know, the Tybalt children to be um, ahead of everyone else um, and and sort of this comparison, this comparative um, uh, sort of sense that he um, felt uh, was sort of appropriate, even though his wife tried to, you know, uh, soften his language um, to the extent that he said, you know, uh, that a, 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 in, in, for anyone to be considered a gentleman, right? Um, and uh, once my children grow up, they will need to, know um, uh, what this technology means, how to use it, um, um, you know, beyond just sort of the uh, 
the the bank tellers i think was the the example right um, i think he i think he said it's something like um you know i i want them to learn python and java and whatever they need to learn so that they end up in the tech boardroom not in the basement right right um and you know we one could and of course getting a job in technology could mean either the boardroom or you know kind of error trapping and you know low level work in the, in the in the basement as it were um and many parents who set their sights on um you know the jobs that haven't been invented yet that are coming down the line and that we're supposed to be preparing our children for if that's ever possible um but many parents don't know well what are those jobs that haven't been invented with and you know so preparing your child to get in the boardroom is um you know kind of almost almost impossible really um mm-hmm. But I think it, it meant that a lot of parents were thinking about the practical steps they could take. Okay, they could, you know, try to buy the technology at home, even though for poorer parents that was often a, a disproportionate financial investment um, and an actually investment of kind of space and rearranging the house compared to, to wealthier parents. Um, and they could look out for where there are coding camps or kind of digital media um, learning opportunities in their in their neighbourhood, and they could um, try to kind of point out, you know, and encourage the possibilities. And you know, often parents are very kind of practical, and they they take the step that's in front of them. And that's you know that it may, it may be beneficial. I'm not saying for none of none of them will get anywhere, but it is certainly very striking when you talk to the more privileged families mm-hmm. how confidently they feel they have the kind of resources and expertise and connections to reproduce their um, position of privilege. Right, right. And so it's it's more than just the practical um, um, sort of sort of approaches, um, or, or maybe we might say that their practical approaches are, um, you know, just so, uh, so different um, uh, than, you know, than a family that that's struggling financially. Um, and especially as you Talk about, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, talk about the the networks, right? That that different families uh, have access to. Uh, I mean, just just a fascinating conversation. Um, to sort of switch gears, I, I kind of want to talk about uh, some of um, the things that you all um, uh, uh, sort of challenge the reader to uh, not take for granted. So, I so for instance. Um, the um, this this concept that uh, that screen time is somehow a meaningful category. Um, you, you all seem to argue that screen time is more uh, of a scapegoat um, as opposed to um, a, a, a data point that really tells us anything. Right. I mean, I had not thought that this book was going to include screen time as a theme um, when when beginning the, the the work, but parents kind of fed it back to us so much and um, they talked about this sense of or it kind of emerged this sense of a bind that um, on the one hand they want to get their kids ahead to read prepared for those jobs that um, haven't been invented yet that are going to need the investment in technology and digital skills and so forth but on the other hand they've got a very strong message they have to limit screen time they have to kind of monitor and control and police what their children are doing online because screen time is bad and will um rot their brains and um uh impede their safety and well-being and they felt you know these were like two completely conflicting narratives mm-hmm. and the 
best kind of resolution they could come up with was a kind of balance of um you know a certain amount of screen time and then a certain amount of something else but that led them into all kinds of conflicts both with their um kids who might be gamers and for whom you know two hours is nothing um and you know much longer game playing is really important or or coders or kids who are you know learning online um uh, and it also um lacked the nuance that you know, in our field, we really know is important, which is what kind of screen time, you know, what are the kids doing online and how does that fit into their lives and what connections and possibilities does it open up for them or maybe close down for them? So um, the judgments that um, I think in um, kind of social science around technology that we would kind of want to hear um, prioritised weren't familiar to the parents who were just getting this, you know, look at your watch, how long have they been on? turn it Mm -hmm. off kind of a message um so screen time became a kind of a uh, an indicator in a way not only of how parents were sort of a bit left in a outdated debate in some ways but also all those advising them you know the health visitors and the and the um teachers and the you know the the kind of and and their peers other other parents and their parents Mm -hmm. uh, are kind of talking the screen time debate when you know, and often it came from um, the American Academy of Pediatrics with its kind of famous two-hour rule. But the American Academy of Pediatrics rethought that rule several years ago. But, you know, that doesn't filter through. And they rethought it because of the kind of research evidence that says actually what really matters is the content and the context and the connections that um, screens may build or may impede and make a more nuanced judgment. So, you know, screen time also symbolizes um, in a way that parents are a bit left out of the loop and that we that they need kind of better support and better guidance. Right. I think I think that 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 is so helpful um, uh, for our readers. Um, Oftentimes, I think, you know, we we, as as you said, we we definitely have um, situations where uh, parents are um, sort of uh, uh, given. contradictory messages, right? So one expert says, you know, screen time is, 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 the, is the marker. Another expert says it's not necessarily the marker. And so it's, it, it presents a real challenge for parents who are just trying to, trying to get it right. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. And I, you know, of course, I'm, I'm one voice among many, and I know there are experts who, who, who disagree with me. I think where, par- where experts would agree with each other is mm-hmm. looking beyond um, how we get to well-being to what we mean by well-being, right. and I think even if you know there are there are still arguments, of course, about screen time and about whether tech is good or bad, addictive or um, you know empowering, and so on. But I think what everyone agrees on is we want our kids to be um, creative, um, to have self-esteem, uh, to sleep well and eat well, to have kind of good relations with their friends and their family, to be, you know, studying and enjoying their schoolwork, to be physically fit and have chance for exercise. You know, I don't think there's the same debate. The only question is, does the technology um, help or hinder in that kind, in those kinds of goals? And right. um, there my message might be... Um, Yes, you know, the experts um, continue to argue, but 
we saw so many different solutions from families. Um, and I think one of the kind of pernicious myths that traps many families is that everyone else is doing it right. And you're kind of, you know, struggling, but they've all got it sorted and they've all got their balance and their two hour rule and so on. Um, but we were just st- overwhelmed by how different those 73 families were mm-hmm. and what different kinds of resolution and balance and, you know, back to the family who, who decided to kind of completely geek out and that would be their way. You know, those kids were doing well in school and they were fit and they were sleeping and, but they all, you know, loved this world of computing and coding together. And other families who were um, prioritizing the creative, you know, there was the um, Jacob and Daisy's family who were just kind of prioritizing being artistic and creative. And if the tech could help with that, great. And when the tech seemed to get in a way, well, let's go out to the park and run around. And, you know, so different ways, different kind of settlements, uh, not all of them happy, not all of them easy, but definitely no sense that other families are all getting it right or other families are all doing it the same. And it's, you know, you that are somehow failing. Right, right. I, you know, to that point, um, I found that um, just from if we can talk a little bit about um, some of the projections. I mean, you you mentioned that some of the um, some parents uh, felt like they um, were were not necessarily um, doing it right, um, or or you know uh, feeling that they were struggling with it more so than others. Um, I one of the observations that I found um, with this book and some other studies um, uh, similar. Um, uh, to uh, some of the concepts you all uh, engage in or, or cover here, I found that cert- you know some parents were um, more uh, sort of uh, likely to discuss their impressions about other parents, and I wonder, I wonder if that, um, and almost in, a, in in terms of like a deficit discourse, right? Um, so assuming that. Um, for instance, parents of a different socioeconomic status, um, a, a lower socioeconomic status, uh, did not necessarily have all the tools or the wherewithal um, uh, to sort of appropriately guide um, their children. And, and we see this in the, in the literature, too, right, in a lot of studies that um, sort of embrace those kinds of um, assumptions. And I, you know, I, I sort of wonder... If you um, saw the opposite of that, did you see, um, uh, you know, um, uh, parents in um, in some of the other uh, 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 communities, uh, immigrant communities, et cetera, sort of talk about um, other parents and or families in, you know, uh, in in higher economic um, statuses and what then what they thought they would be they were doing? Yeah, I think. in some ways, uh, parents are hyper aware of uh, what other families might be doing um, and how they might be doing it better. And that makes parents kind of anxious and feel bad. Um, they were also critically reflective on that. So we had some kind of interesting conversations about, you know, those when parents meet at the at the school gates, perhaps to to pick up the kids or um, they kind of knew that they were only telling part of the story and that they would do the bit that they could brag or that they might um, make the judgment, harsh judgment of others or that 
they would be receiving that harsh judgment. And that, that wasn't the whole story. And so they, you know, in a way they, so they felt the parent shaming, but they were also kind of aware that it was um, uh, somehow uh, invented sort of part of the game because there was also the sense that when they were in their own home with the front door closed, they had a bit more leeway to do it their way. Mm-hmm. And some of those judgments disappeared and they kind of knew that, you know, they were a family that um, liked a lazy morning and everyone would pile into um, bed together and watch a movie and that's what they did on Sundays and they don't care what other families do. You know, that was the kind of their time. Or um, other, you know, families where, I don't know, they liked to kind of, uh, go in the kitchen and cook something together and they'd have kind of YouTube for the um, or a way of you know getting the recipes and they would be using the tech and everyone would be half on their phones but also doing something together and that was their thing um, you know and lots of stories like that where they just felt they if they found their ways of, of coming together and relaxing together in some ways then the other things that everyone did separately um uh, where the parents felt less control over the kids, those were a bit less important because they knew, you know, there was the, the kind of the, the, the core of the, the family life was 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 going well. And when that wasn't going well, um, then everything was anxious. So, you know, I think of, of one um, single parent family, um, you know, reasonably affluent, but the father had died recently and the mother and son were just, you know, they were... Um, just living in their separate worlds, each in a kind of world of sadness. And the boy was upstairs gaming a lot and the mum was kind of downstairs worrying a lot. And, um, you know, they hadn't... So when they were behind their front door, it wasn't happy. And the technology did pull them apart um, because she didn't understand what he loved. Um, So it wasn't so much about the comparison of what other families are doing. Um, It was, I, I think... There's, it's a lot of um, very kind of internal struggles, really, between the parent and the child and parents kind of trying to, in some ways, respect the children for who they are and what they want to do, and in other ways feeling terribly burdened that they've got to get their kids to be in a certain way and want them to be in a certain way. And, you know, so every day, so many everyday struggles came out in this book, so many ways in which just the most ordinary uh, mundane activities were the source of fights and the sense that big values were at stake and um, the future was at stake if we don't get it right. And, you know, parents feel pretty kind of powerless in, in lots of those struggles. Right. And did, and could you talk a little bit about um, the, the struggle of trying to and wanting to get it right, but also, um, uh, also uh, you know, this sort of feeling of, wanting to um to allow um children to self-actualize and and how technology um might be able to to help uh in some ways and 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 also hinder hinder that self-actualization so i think that's the um biggest struggle of parenting um you want to protect your child and you want to guide them uh, and they want to be, um, you know, increasingly kind of independent and go their own way and assert themselves. And we we see this from the from the kind of the the, the toddler on, really, and definitely uh, in the teenager. So technology um, has entered into that debate in recent years, and that's kind of struggle. Um, why? Because it uh, offers so many options that seem quite significant. You know, both. 
um, in terms of values and in terms of risks, that it becomes the focus of the struggle between the parent and the child. Um, also because the technology has become uh, so personalised. So, you know, gone are the days of television where the parent knew what the child was watching and could talk about it, as, as we used to advise. Um, and now everyone is in their kind of own personalised bubble. So the chances for the parent to kind of mediate and understand and even share with the child are seem, seem difficult. Um, and then thirdly, perhaps because the technology is so complex, that mm. it's something that the child often feels much more at home with and kind of confident in using while the parent is is sort of struggling to understand and realize what options are even available for them. So so they kind of feel a bit, you know, kind of outsmarted. So I think for all of those reasons, um, what is a um uh you know a, a struggle between child and parent that's as old as human history has got this kind of new twist and this in, in the digital age and this new kind of intensity that focuses everyone on fighting about, you know, how long have you been on that game or, you know, are you young enough to have your own phone yet or, you know, should you be doing this or that um, uh, and what are the risks? Um, so, yes, there are, there are opportunities there and, yes, there are risks there, but I think that that sense that the technologies become the very kind of, you know, the sort of terrain through which the parent and child both struggle and the child tries to find their own space and their own kind of domain away from the parent. You know, that's the kind of more fundamental um, tension, really. Right. And how did you see that um, as sort of um, uh, come to the fore uh, as you navigated um or, or talked with uh, special um, educational needs and uh, families uh, who have children with special educational needs and disabilities? Mm. Um, so let me give you the example of um, Ryan and Amy, who um, whose child, um, Kyle, was um, uh, on the autism spectrum, and he was 13, and he, um, it was one of those kind of classic dilemmas. So he hadn't before really kind of found um, a thing that could engage him or that could give anyone a sense that uh, he could really learn and express himself. And then he found this, almost randomly, this kind of architectural software that he downloaded and engaged with and kind of got into in, you know, perhaps a bit of a kind of geeky way. Um, And he loved it and he spent hours at it. And you could see Ryan and Amy watching this and thinking, he's found something he loves. He's found something he feels, you know, he can do and is good at. Um, And um, perhaps it offers him a pathway because, after all, the world needs architects and it needs people who can use software and it needs people who can kind of design spaces. And so they began finding supportive activities like uh, going for a walk, to um and kind of commenting on you know how was the space built and how had the how had the shopping mall or whatever been designed you know they, they were trying to but at the same time you know they and we watching thought you know perhaps this is going nowhere perhaps this is you know this is an incredible kind of journey they're anticipating for um a boy who really has quite a lot of you know challenges to face in his life um and maybe it's 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 kind of not going to take him where he where he or anywhere at all, and he'd be better placed doing something else. Um, and so it, it was just so hard for them to know, and frankly impossible for us to know as well. But 
the 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 the, the focus of his educational special needs became kind of um, expressed and discussed and thought about through his engagement with the technology and with this particular piece of software. And so that kind of became the language of the the possibilities and the ways that they could guide him. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think the book does a really great job, um, at, at, as you said, you know, sort of um, highlighting many of the differences. But I think even in that um, family, um, with that situation, I think it's very similar to um, to how um, other families sort of see technology and technological use um, as sort of a, um, a potential pathway, right, to their children's future. Um, and are, you know, you use the, the word balance um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the book. Um, and I, I think that um, uh, that really comes out um, just through uh, the, the um, learning about the different families. But seeing that there is this commonality that all of the families are looking for um, this balance um, and, and for an opportunity, you know, opportunities for their children to, um, uh, to sort of, uh, you know, become themselves, if you will, as adults um, in, in, in various ways. But I, I do want to um, kind of wrap up and, and ask you if you could maybe share with us, um, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the big takeaway um, of the book. I have in my mind what the big takeaway is, but it, it, it's always great to hear what um, what, the, what the author, um, you know, imagines the, or intends rather, the big takeaway to be. Uh, it's a great question. Um, three answers flood to mind. But if I, if, I, if I must pick one, I for me, it's the way in which technology has become so much more than just the technology um, in the kind of, um, in, in our culture, and in our discourse um, and in the way in which um, we live our everyday lives. So it's become the the kind of the focus of um, the hopes and fears that go so much wider. And so it's gained this kind of enormous importance and the potential to put right all kinds of wrongs of injustice or inequality or um, exclusion. Uh, and so it has a really big job to do. Uh, and and for me, that explains um, many of those other things about the way in which, um, you know, parents love to talk about technology or it's seen as, as kind of so polarizing or such a source of anxiety or everyone is looking for advice about it. But, you know, for me, it's because it, it, it has come to play this bigger role um, in fixing the things that, are, that that people are struggling with more fundamentally in their lives. Right. Yes. Well, um, I would like to invite you to um, read uh, your favorite excerpt uh, from the book for us. Uh, thank you so much, Jerry. I would love to. Um, and thinking about that, I thought I might just read the first um, page or two. Okay. If that doesn't good. seem, because um, uh, an author rarely writes the first page first. <laughs> you tend to write it um, later. Okay, so here we go. It's called Expectations. As we entered Lara and Pavel Mazur's small flat in a comfortable London suburb, Lara began pouring out their disagreements over six-year-old Thomas's digital media use, exclaiming how they'd been looking forward to discussing this with us. Lara, a college administrator originally from Brazil, was full of ideas to enable Thomas's online opportunities, 
researching educational apps and guiding his search, quote, to build his confidence and make him independent. Pavel, a chef from Poland, was worried about online risks, especially after Thomas's friends introduced him to a violent video game. Lara wanted Thomas to learn about the ways of the world, saying, my position is to talk to him about it when it's happening. I'm very open, maybe too open. She was critical of other mums and implicitly of Pavel for his caution. Pavel, who'd set passwords for everyone on the family laptop, offered a hesitant defence. He conceded, we need to educate him how to use the internet so he can make the right choices, but you need to be safe as well at the same time. I don't want to control. I just want to be able to view it in case there's something which I'm not able to control. Thomas told us shyly that he loved football online and offline, along with video games and playing outdoors with the neighbourhood children. His parents' divergent approaches to digital technology were not lost on the six-year-old. Thomas observed that his dad didn't always let him play his beloved FIFA when he's playing too much, but mum usually says yes. So how should parents manage digital devices and experiences, and what should they expect of them? Why are these questions so contested within families, among policymakers, and in the media? During the fieldwork for this book, anxious, enthusiastic, defensive, or exhausted parents told us about their parenting philosophy and where they turned for inspiration or support. Some parents, and of course we include those in a primary domestic caregiving role for children, some were consumed with these questions while others seemed less bothered, whether because they had greater concerns elsewhere or had managed somehow to avoid the swirling anxiety about all things digital. As with Lara and Pavel, mothers and fathers often differed in their concerns and social class and ethnicity also differentiated families, yet not always in predictable ways. And this diversity matters because it complicates and contests public and policymakers' assumption about the role of digital technologies in family life. Lara and Pavel's disagreement illustrates a point that we often refer to and return to throughout the book. Talk or actions that seem to concern children's digital lives are at heart rooted in parents' deeper hopes and fears for family lives and for their children's futures. So building on research conducted over four years with parents, children and educators, we explore the lives of families, variously enjoying the pleasures and wrestling with the challenges of digital technologies. And we argue that as parents strive to understand the profound changes they're living through, digital dilemmas act as a lightning rod for contemporary contestations over values, identity and responsibility. Thank you again, Sonia. Uh, it was it was a pleasure to speak with you um, today. Thank you so much, Jerry. That was really that was fun. Good questions. Mm-hmm.